Hi, this is Anya, a.k.a. Strangely Literal. And I'm Alan, and this is Shadows and Shamblers. Please stand as you are able for this week's reading, which comes to us from the Book of Wednesday. Rigged games are the easiest ones to beat. Now you may be seated. This week we watched American Gods, Episode 1, The Boneyard. So, what did you think, Alan? I was let down by this episode overall. Uh, I was kind of confused at the end of it, to be honest. Uh, The way it started out with a prologue was disappointing to me. You know, the whole prologue situation from our mentor, Lonnie Diane Rich. Um, And right away in the prologue, we get this Viking who steps onto the shores of America and just turns into a pincushion with uh, all these arrows sticking out of his entire body. And I was like, oh, this is very over the top in a way that I was not expecting. And uh, in the dream sequences that come in and out, I couldn't tell what was real and what wasn't. I couldn't tell a lot of times it what shadow was imagining or if he was having a dream did it disturb him like the ceiling falls away and he sees his wife and then he just kind of rolls over and goes to sleep like yep totally normal night where i see my wife in the ceiling (laughs) and the whole thing like just felt fast and really heightened and uh yeah it was not what i was expecting How, how about you anya what did you think of it I enjoyed a lot of the parts individually, but I'm not quite sure it came together as a whole and as a pilot. I worry that it was even more incomprehensible for non-book readers. I did enjoy it a lot more the second time through, I will say. I think the just super weird things didn't bother me as much, and it did feel more cohesive and more linked together. The Mm -hmm. second time. I agree. Yeah, so speaking of the Viking gore extravaganza in the prologue, I think this is a good point to mention to our listeners that this podcast will reflect the content of the show we're talking about, and so it's going to contain mature language and descriptions of sexual encounters and graphic violence. So don't listen to any episodes of this podcast with someone who you wouldn't want to watch the corresponding show episodes with. With that disclaimer out of the way, let's pay homage to this week's creators. This episode was directed by David Slade. He directed five episodes of Hannibal and was also the executive producer of that show. This episode was co-written by showrunners Brian Fuller and Michael Green. Fuller was most recently the showrunner on Hannibal and has created and worked on many shows that we talked about at probably too much length in our episode zero. (laughs) Green is one of three credited writers for the recently released comic book movie, Logan. And let's take a moment to remember what happened in this week's episode. In the distant past, a ship full of Vikings is stranded on an alien shore, and the crew is forced to sacrifice each other to summon the power of Odin in the form of wind. They escape, but the god is left behind. In the present, Shadow Moon is released from prison early because his wife has died. After a night sleeping in the airport, 
Shadow is upgraded to first class with the mysterious Mr. Wednesday, who offers him a job. Meanwhile, a man goes on a date with a woman named Bilquis, which ends in sex, worship, and death. Exhausted by delays and nightmares, Shadow decides to rent a car and drive to his wife's funeral. But when he stops at a bar for dinner, he discovers that Mr. Wednesday has somehow followed him. Wednesday reveals that Shadow's best friend Robbie is also dead, which puts Shadow out of a job, a job that Mr. Wednesday is willing to replace. Mad Sweeney, a self-proclaimed leprechaun, goads Shadow into a fight. The next day, Shadow can't remember what happened, but Mr. Wednesday drops him off in Eagle Point for his wife's funeral. His wife's best friend, Audrey, tells Shadow that Laura and Robbie died together when they were having sex. Shadow demands answers at Laura's graveside, but when there is no answer, he throws a gold coin on her grave. Shadow goes for a walk to collect himself and discovers a strange device. It attaches to his face and he is drawn into the virtual world of the technical boy. He threatens Shadow and orders his faceless thugs to kill him. As they string him up in a nearby tree, something kills them all. Shadow is left alone and confused. So, before we get into the meat of the episode, I want to talk a little bit about how the show worked or didn't work as a pilot. As you know, pilots have a lot of heavy lifting that they have to do. They have to introduce a new cast of characters that you don't really care about yet. They have to communicate the show's premise, sort of where it sits in genre, um, what its promise to the viewer is. And then on top of all that, also tell a compelling narrative. Did it work for you as a pilot? As a pilot, I think there is not enough of a ramp in this pilot in general, in my opinion. It feels like a cliff wall that you are asked to climb. Yeah, no, that's probably a good description. I guess they're kind of in a, a hard place trying to communicate how much magic there is in this universe. Shadow, the character, is confused about how much magic there is in the universe. And I think to some extent in this episode and maybe in the whole series, we are in Shadow's point of view right? pretty deeply, I think. We are sharing his confusion, I guess, about what's real, what's not real, how much magic is there, how much of what we're showing is to be taken literally. I'm not sure it's clear how much magic there is in this universe, but I also think that might have been an intentional decision, and I don't quite hate it. it I think it sort of will have to wait and see whether that is a successful decision or not. I do think that the episode itself does not necessarily do a great job of communicating the show's premise, which... If you're super sensitive to spoilers, maybe don't listen to this, but I feel like it's in basically all of the star's promotional materials. It's so And it should have been in this pilot. 
you know. Yes. Well, so basically, in all of Star's promotional materials, they say the show is about old gods versus new gods. And it sort of sets you up to believe that gods are real and that there's some sort of sides brewing in a fight against each other. And I don't think that necessarily was communicated very clearly, but I think knowing that premise is almost necessary for being able to understand this episode. When I watched this episode with my boyfriend, I wanted him to just get a completely fresh look at the episode without knowing anything. So I didn't even tell him that. And he was super confused. He had no idea what was going on. He called it a barely comprehensible visual feast. <laughs> and after we after we watched the episode, I told him just the one word the one sentence premise old gods versus new gods. And he went, oh. So definitely, if you're trying to share this episode with a friend, I think just giving them that basic premise before they start, old gods versus new gods, makes the whole thing way more approachable and comprehensible as a viewer. What do you call that in science when you're doing an experiment? What would your boyfriend be since he hasn't read the book? He doesn't know any of the promotional material. Is he the control or is he the... Yeah, you could think of it that way. I mean, he's if we're trying to test how prior knowledge affects the way that you receive the TV show, yeah, he's the control. Okay. And it failed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it definitely did not go over well. Um, But he said he would keep watching with me. So at least it didn't ruin it for him. I think the visual feast is right on this. It, the show is gorgeous. and uh, It definitely is. Aside from, I think, the CGI rain at the end, which mm-hmm. didn't quite work for me. Um, the rest of it, I thought, was really good. You know, you were talking about Shadow and how we're in his POV. And it makes the prologue that much more frustrating to me because Shadow is clearly an audience surrogate. In the way that, like, yeah. say, yeah, like Harry Potter would be in in his story, where he just comes from the regular world, he doesn't know anything, and all of this strange stuff happens, and then he has the opportunity to go, "Why is this happening? Somebody, please explain it to me." And to start off with that prologue, that seems to assume that we know some of what's going on like oh we we have to battle each other even though we all came here on this boat together so that we can you know wake up the god it's like what is going on speaking of that viking battle if you like count the number of bodies like i think you see more people die in that scene than were in the boat to start with. And then the boat's <laughs> still pretty full when they're returning to go back. So there's definitely some sort of like errors in personnel counting there. Did they multiply? Were there, I, there no something women? like that? Or maybe they just, you know, like there was a second boat where they had a bunch of dudes hiding off camera who weren't involved in the fight and those were the ones that went back. Oh, that's very charitable. That's nice of you. I like that. <laughs> For me, I feel like the point of the prologue is to communicate the world building and the show's premise and i think it only works if you already know the show's premise it kind of reminds you about Mm. it but if you don't already know that gods are real when it says when the vikings returned 200 years later their gods were already there it's hard to know how literally or how metaphorically to interpret that 
So I think it really only, like I understand what they were trying to do, but I think it only fulfills that function on your second viewing or if you already actually know what it's trying to do. And yeah, like maybe they could have had something where the effigy falls down and there's like a body there and he kind of lifts his head and watches them leave or something. And you would get a sense of like, oh, there's like a person there now or something. But it yeah. just doesn't, yeah, it doesn't communicate itself. I like that your boyfriend is going to be watching along and doesn't know what's going on. This is going to, this is good. It's like we're doing an experiment. Uh, on your poor yeah. boyfriend, but <laughs> but he can tell us like if it's working or not, and uh, maybe his thoughts will line up with some of our listeners who have not read the book but are following along with the story. So yeah, that'll be good. So we don't think that it works very well as a pilot in general. Would you say that, or did did you think like on a second viewing that you said that it improved? Do you feel? How do you feel about the the pilot in general? Just do you feel okay with it? Or are you still optimistic for what the show can do? Um. Well, so I guess as far as the three things that a pilot is supposed to do, I think it actually does a pretty good job of introducing characters. I think it does an okay job of setting up the premise of the show and sort of how much magic there is, but only if you come in with prior knowledge. And then I guess we'll talk later about how much it tells a compelling narrative. Um, I guess there's sort of a trend in prestige TV right now that episodic structure is not that important. Uh, For instance, Game of Thrones, a lot of times... In those episodes, it feels that it's just kind of like shit happens for an hour and we incrementally move forward everybody's plot lines. Right. But there's no sort of overarching structure and story. Well, I guess let's just talk about it now. So so to me, I felt like the episodic structure for this episode, which was really only apparent to me on the second viewing, is that if you ignore the Viking prologue, it starts with Shadow feeling this sense of foreboding there's that badly CGI'd noose imagery that shows up. And <laughs> On then, the tree? Is that what you mean? Yeah. That okay. was the, that was like the one part of the dream CGI that I really did not like. Yeah. And you think, as I guess as the episode progresses, you kind of think that that sense of foreboding is about Laura dying. And I think Shadow thinks that the sense of foreboding is also about Laura dying. But then at the end, after his encounter with the technical boy, when he's actually strung up and hung, uh, you realize that the sense of foreboding is actually much bigger than just his wife being killed in a car accident. Um, and I think the the callback to the noose from his dream really gives this episode what little sense of episodic structure it, is, it has. And I think that's part of what made it better the second time around was sort of knowing where it was going with that. The episodic structure, the story that this is telling from like an episode perspective is that Shadow has a sense of foreboding and boy howdy, like, yes, shit is happening. And <laughs> and his his prophetic dream was fulfilled. There's a lot going on 
here plot wise and sort of setting things up for the future. But as far as like what makes this episode an episode into itself a cohesive piece of work, it's that it's the sense of foreboding, the noose, and then like, yep, he ends up getting hung at the end. Mm. I had not thought of it as a prophetic dream. I love this, though. It makes it much better for me. I had not thought of it that way. Yeah, it totally does. And I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed it so much better the second time. But I think the first time through, there's just so much going on. It's hard to sort of pick those things out and connect them. Mm -hmm. And you're right, because there's kind of a three beat almost where we get the effigy being hung. And then we see the, the noose moving in on shadow and then he is hung at the end yeah yeah huh yeah so you were talking about the foreboding feelings that shadow is having when he's in prison and he calls his wife and all this and he i think he says that the air feels constipated he smells snow in the sky and and with the prophetic dreams there's absolutely a sense of fate in in the story which yeah. I think is really important. What I was thinking when I was watching the episode in terms of religion is these Vikings that we start off with, their religion has hanging in the background of it this apocalyptic event called Ragnarok. And this is a confrontation that happens with all of the Norse gods like Odin and Thor. Uh, you know, people know those gods, right? normal people who don't read Norse mythology for fun. Okay. Yeah, okay. totally. Uh, so, <laughs> so Ragnarok is coming and in Norse mythology, it's an event where all of the gods die and the universe is consumed in darkness and only monsters are left <laughs> in the aftermath. So it's like kind of a bummer. And the point of it is it's like a metaphor for death. No matter what you do, in your life, you're going to die. There's nothing that you can do about that. So the question is, as a Viking, how are you going to live your life? I see. So it's not about avoiding death. It's about how do you confront it's, death? It's how the highest virtue is to become the most glorious and famous Viking that you can possibly become. Your death becomes a story and a legend that is a fixture in the culture from the time you die until Ragnarok comes. And you are so glorious that when you die, the gods have no choice but to let you into Valhalla and you sit at the table with Odin and Thor and dine until the end of the universe. And for regular people who don't become glorious, they don't get in. The idea of becoming so glorious and so famous and so powerful that you are remembered for all of history to me is like the American dream where you are going to become like okay. this Walt Disney type of character, you know, who kind of comes up from the common people, but has this vision, this dream, this drive, this ambition that carries you to the heights of the culture and you forevermore become famous. Okay. Yeah. And so Shadow being pulled into that? I feel or like, do you think it's I feel like Shadow lacks motivation in general. And this is his central problem in the story. That we are starting him off in this place where he just goes along with whatever the plan is. He's in prison. Yeah, he's very 
he's very passive. He's sort of like keeping his head down, just trying to totally. get through exactly. whatever. Happened. He's just serving his time, right? He's he's in there. Yeah, he's just yeah. making birdhouses. He's doing his thing. He's keeping his head down. He doesn't argue with anybody. That guard is like, oh, kind of a good good news, bad news situation, huh, Shadow? And he doesn't give him any guff over that. He's clearly trying to rile Shadow, and Shadow's like, yep, no problem. But I don't think that Shadow's dead inside or anything like that. He just, this is just where his character begins his arc. Yeah, and I think it kind of works because it sets up the turn in the bar later, right? Because he he does, he starts out super passive, but then when he's actually entering into the contract with Wednesday, he becomes a super tough negotiator and he is like, what about what I want? (laughs) You know, let's talk about my needs for a second. And then I guess he's... He's still trying to avoid the fight with Sweeney, but I feel like the the scene in the bar is key and it does show him breaking out of that passivity makes him a better protagonist than he would it's, be otherwise. Yeah, it's a tough it's a tough role because Shadow is passive for so much. I feel like the stuff in the bar is still him trying to remain passive like his whole plan right is he's going to get out of prison and he's going to go back with his wife just the way that they were before he's going to get a job from his best friend so everybody is making decisions for him his wife says we're going to have uh the surprise party for you and you know act surprised and you'll go back to work for robbie and everything is going to be like it was and then you know when he gets sent out of prison He doesn't decide to do that. And he goes to the airport and he's confronted with a situation where they say, nope, you can't fly in this plane. And he doesn't argue. He just sleeps in the airport. He lets it happen to him. By the time he gets to the bar, like you say, I feel like the coin flip is still him trying to get out of it. He Wednesday gives him a choice. But he is trying to assert agency with the coin flip. I mean, he's trying to con him a little bit right like he's rigged the toss a little bit but he could just say no like he doesn't even want to take that level of responsibility in my opinion like he's already told him no wednesday is persistent he won't take no for an answer and instead he says well okay how about i just pawn my decision off on this coin flip and i'll just trick him instead of just standing his ground and saying no and or saying i'm getting out of here old man leave me alone he he could be way more confrontational than he is. He could he could be way less passive. The coin flip is still kind of passive in my opinion. Okay, fair point. All of I I kind of thought of all of this because of the actual coin. On the coin it says liberty. And it's like he is playing with his freedom when he is flipping that coin. Oh, interesting. And, and when when he is throwing away his liberty in this symbolic way, in my mind, he is entering into a contract that makes him a slave. A slave to fate and possibly to Mr. Wednesday. Which is interesting, right? Because there's this element of race and we're talking about the American dream and we're talking about opportunity and we're talking about seizing your destiny. And so to have 
Shadow, who in this uh, adaptation is clearly African-American, throw away his liberty in a way and come under somebody else's control and be used is a strong theme to introduce into this show. Yeah. When I guess part of the role of the really explicit Jim Crow lynching imagery is to make that more explicit. Like, yes, we're taking away this guy's freedom and putting him into servitude, and we realize what we're doing. That it is sort of an echo of what's happened in this country before. That was definitely the point at which I was like, okay, I'm not just seeing things with this Liberty coin. They are doing this on purpose. And I wasn't sure how I felt about it with the characters who are these faceless creatures stringing him up. Like, it's sort of because the technical boys, minions, we'll just call them, don't have faces at sort of removing the personal nature of the lynching. When, like, in reality, historically, it wasn't the faceless mob. Like, it was real people. And it was people who, did that. who knew that person, probably. You know what I mean? Like, people who, yeah, yeah. who had blamed this person for whatever and uh, and probably grew up with them and lived with them and... And so it's it's kind of a, I don't know, the faceless thing. I guess you could think of things like the KKK having masks um, in the Jim Crow era. Yeah. But I wasn't sure how that landed, but the definitely the lynching was like, oh, okay, we're doing this on purpose. And the other thing about the lynching that's interesting, going back to the Vikings, is that this was a real way that people were sacrificed um, in the pre-Roman times throughout Germania. Oh, I did not even draw that connection. But that is so true. Yeah, it's totally... I mean, that sort of helps justify the Viking prologue Mm -hmm. even more, right? That it's... The episode starts with a sacrifice and it ends with a different kind of sacrifice. Yeah, and so it connects... And it ties all of that uh-huh. to race in America, which I really like. Um, all these interesting themes of religion, identity. This, this is all the things that I want the show to be doing. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like we started off the podcast with some negative reactions. And now our conversation, for the most part, has been very positive <laughs> since that point. But that's good, though. Like, we, this is what we're here for. Like, we want to dig deep. And... And the way when you watch it the first time, like you're just kind of left with your head spinning. You're like, what just happened? But when yeah. you look closely, I think there are things to discover here. And uh, and I think there's a lot of good storytelling happening. Okay, so while we're talking about the issue of race and the framing for this episode, I just want to talk for a second about the black academic narrator guy who's writing the Viking story at the beginning. And so the first time I watched the episode, I completely forgot that that even happened. And then, so when I was watching the second time, I was sort of like, oh yeah, what is his purpose? I feel like that's something that kind of falls flat, maybe, in just the context of this episode. I hope they go back to it and sort of justify that inclusion somehow, because it just, it didn't really make sense other than sort of like, 
a somewhat trite framing yeah. device. I wasn't sure if I'm supposed to assume because of the voiceover and the writing that this Viking, you know, prologue is somehow heightened or unbalanced versus the reality of the show. Like, that's what I took it as when I watched it. I was like, oh, okay, this guy is full of arrows and this is all crazy. And it's because this guy is telling a story and then we're going to get back to reality. Oh, I but see, I don't yeah. feel like that actually happened. I just think that there's a consistent tone throughout the show. And I do want to say, like, I'm fine with, like, a crazy heightened tone in general. I just need to know what's going on like it needs to be consistent to where i understand that okay in this world people can have their arms chopped off and continue to hold a sword and then stab someone else on the other side of a battlefield i'm okay with that happening if it consistently happens all the time but there are other times where the world feels very grounded and uh and normal like when they're on the airplane and they're having a conversation with each other about like being a con artist and you know all of this stuff there's nothing crazy happening there that the airplane is just a normal airplane it's not like a crazy weird airplane or anything like that so i don't the show that like has these ups and downs i'm never sure where the footing is and that that prologue really threw me off uh and and like you said that frame is like because if you look at the frame i can't even tell what time in history that's happening like his office has an old-timey typewriter and uh an old fan on uh, a filing cabinet and all this stuff and so the setting feels like maybe 40s 50s maybe even 60s but not contemporary like there's not a computer and stuff oh yeah definitely definitely not contemporary i wonder how much of that was sort of them trying to say i mean there's an inversion there right in that we think throughout most of history, right, the official version of history has been written by white dudes talking about other people's experiences, Mm. and they haven't had a lot of agency on their own to write that story. And so this is sort of inverting that, I guess. There's an African-American guy writing about you know, the history of white people. And so that's kind of interesting that they chose to portray it that way. And I kind of like that, but it also, I want there to be more to it than just that. So we'll see. Yeah, hopefully we get more or find out who that guy even is. They don't even tell us. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I also really appreciated on the second watch is the music. And I, I barely noticed it the first time through, but the second time, there's a lot of very different styles of music. And they use the music really effectively to set the tone and, and particularly to change the tone. So when Shadow first gets to the bar in the middle, there's sort of a, an oldies, lighthearted, fun music playing in the background. And then the music changes very quickly all of a sudden and turns really dark, right, as the tone of the show changes to become really dark. And I I just thought that the music was well done um, and that they use it really effectively to sort of control the tone 
and how you're feeling about the characters. So I am looking forward to really paying attention to that in more detail for future episodes. Okay, so that song is in the book in that bar scene. Oh, really? Yes. He calls it out. And it is like an old song about like a king killing his people. So that song is like that. I I agree. The music is interesting. I did notice when I watched it uh, the first time that there is almost wall-to-wall music. Um, Not like in the bar scene where it's diegetic, but like there's almost constantly uh, music playing, which I think adds to that heightened feeling. A lot of the music is really atonal and unusual sounding for a TV score, kind of avant-garde. I appreciated the Foley work in the episode, um, which is like the sound effects and things like that. Uh, In the bar scene, we get Mad Sweeney doing his coin tricks. And if you listen very carefully, every time he pulls a coin out, it is some kind of metallic coin sound. But the sound is being played in reverse. And it's... Oh, really? Yep. It's a little bit of an aural signal that weirdness is happening. And you can kind of read that on Shadow's face, too, where every time he's doing this, he's adding coins into the cup, uh, Shadow is getting more and more annoyed as that goes along. And, uh, and it's weird. I love how just straightforward Mad Sweeney is. Like, Mr. Wednesday's being kind of cagey about his identity, isn't laying all the cards on the table, and Mad Sweeney is just like, yep, I'm a leprechaun. <laughs> like, of course I'm from Ireland. Um, I feel like it's kind of, it's refreshing, and I feel like it does help the viewer anchor themselves a little bit more, and it's like, okay, yes, like, the thing that I thought was happening is in fact actually happening. I like his attitude too. He is very simultaneously angry and joyful. Like he he seems pissed the whole time he's doing the coin trick. Like he's doing it to get under Shadow's skin. And then Shadow's like, how did you do that? And he's with panache. Yeah. (laughs) So he's like enjoying himself, but he's also constantly annoyed with everything that's happening around him. Uh, I really enjoyed Matt Sweeney. I like that performance. Wouldn't you be annoyed if you were in a coin trick pissing contest with a leprechaun? That seems like (laughs) a losing proposition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I enjoyed that part uh, quite a bit, even though I'm not crazy about the bar itself uh, in terms of setting. Uh, It throws me out a little bit, but everything in there was really great. Uh, Do we want to talk about Bilquis at all? Yeah, I mean, I feel like we have to, even though it's, I guess we haven't gotten to it yet because it's apparently unconnected from all the other parts of the episode, but we definitely need to talk about it. Sure. So way back when I read this book originally, um, I was obsessed with it. And so I needed to know, like, are these things real? Who are these people? And so I've, I feel like I've known this forever, but I've definitely looked it up. Uh, after reading the book. And Bilquis um, is that name uh, actually comes from Bilquis, which is a character in the Quran. She is a historical character, the Queen of Sheba, which which was a a real person. Yeah. Um, But in the- So Mm -hmm. how how does that relate to- engulfing a man with your vagina i guess (laughs) is my question i would say okay in the bible uh there's a book called the song of songs or the song of solomon 
which yeah okay i'm slightly familiar with that it's like the sexy part of the bible exactly like this this whole thing is like a long poem that's about sex and carnal love and uh supposedly written by solomon and the subject the lover in that poem is some people take it to be the queen of sheba this could be about bilquis and during the sex she's saying worship me worship me and it's clear that the guy that she's with is not articulate enough if that's the right way to say it to say some of the things that he says oh yeah so when when he is actually worshiping her right the the like words of his worship are coming from outside of him he's like channeling some sort of force that's beyond his own intellect he's channeling the song of songs he's oh oh that's what he's reciting yep kind of yep oh okay thank you see this is why you're on this podcast Yeah, so it, I think it links her directly uh, to this Queen of Sheba archetype. But that's a whole nother can of worms with Bilquis. I don't even know if you want to get into it, that I don't think she should be here. I don't think she should be in the book because her scene doesn't do anything. It doesn't move the plot forward. It's just like, here is weirdness. And I think it's really dumb. I mean, it's world building. You can call it world building. Yeah. I think there are other ways to do it. I I like that performance. I thought that that is a really tough effect to ask a production company to yeah. do. And I think they did it as well as you could possibly do it. I just figured they'd leave her out. Because in the book, she doesn't come back. I hope she comes back in the show. I, I thought it was a good performance. She is going to come back. So I don't, I mean, I don't know in what way she's going to come back. But in interviews with Fuller and Green, they've said that they expanded a lot of female roles and that Bill Quist in particular has a bigger role in the TV show than she does in the book. Hmm. Makes me wonder about her. She is more aggressive in this version than she is in the book. And I thought that was an interesting choice. Because yeah. in the book, it is like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer situation where Buffy will go into a dark alley and have a vampire follow her and pretend to be a victim. And then once she's away from people that could get hurt in the fight, she will slay the slay the vampire. Yeah. And in the book, it's the same thing with Bilquis, where she pretends to be a prostitute to lure a John into the situation, and then she consumes him. Where you think the guy is... Is she pretending to be a prostitute, though? Because he says... So in the book... In the book, she definitely is. They do explicitly say she's a prostitute. Yeah, but in the TV show, he clearly says that he's... Uh, not paying for That's it. what I mean. That um, that in this version, she's much more aggressive. She is. She is. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah. Like she's sed- she's seducing. She's exactly yeah. okay. exactly. She's in charge of the seduction. She's in charge of everything. Right. She she brings him to the bed and he's like, "Are you sure you want to do this?" And she's like, "Just be quiet." <laughs> like this is going to happen. Well, and then speaking of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We get our sort of like, it's not quite a Whedon cut, but it's sort of like a Whedon cut style reference in reverse, where in the next scene, Wednesday says something about uh, sex rushed into is never a bad idea or something. Oh, (laughs) I hadn't even thought of that. 
You're right. Yeah. The only thing that I notice about that cut is that we go from him like being consumed and then right after that, like she kind of shivers or whatever. And then the next shot is us moving through the crocodile's mouth and and coming out of the mouth of the bar. And I'm like, okay, TV show. You're like, All right. I get I get it. <laughs> This is a little heavy-handed. I, you know, I didn't notice that, so I'm glad we're we're holding, picking on to different things. <laughs> we're noticing different things. Okay, what did you think about Wednesday's whole thing about is it Faith or Newton that keeps us in the air? Do you think that was just sort of to to underscore the theme about the power of belief? Yeah, he might. Maybe it's a bad idea for him to bring that up. <laughs> I know. If everyone in the plane starts doubting. It's like uh, Wiley Coyote, uh, you know, hanging out on the edge of the cliff. And then he kind of looks down and then he's like, oh, and then he falls. Uh, You know what? That that scene bothered me the first time that I watched it because I was like, it's not Newton. It's Bernoulli. What is he talking about? Yeah. Well, okay. Aside from (laughs) that. Yeah. I guess did they just go with Newton because they didn't think people would recognize Bernoulli? They underestimated us. Come on, writers. We're smarter than that. <laughs> um, yeah. So Newton versus Faith. My boyfriend actually also was like said out loud. Like we weren't talking for most of the time, but when we got to that part, he yeah, he was like, "Hey, Bernoulli, not See? Newton." Nerds get it. We know what's going on. Um, yeah. That's an interesting question. So, and the and the show in general, I think, is going to be about. Shadow's struggle with what he believes is real and what, you know, keeps manifesting. Even though it's crazy, it must be true because it just keeps happening. Like you put this device on your face and suddenly you're in a limousine with this weird technical boy creature. Um, You can't deny the phenomenon of that. Yeah, I think... And the, you know, the crazy buffalo with the burning eyes that he sees in his vision that tells him to believe. And he's, believe what? Believe all of it. His, his faith is the source of his power. Everybody is telling him, take, take control. And he's not ready. I think that's where Shadow's at. What did you think about Wednesday as a con man? One thing that really struck me watching the episode the second time is just how good Ian McShane's performance as Wednesday is because you can tell there's something like a little bit off about him. He's not completely on the up and up and you really want to distrust him. But there's also just like something underneath that that you can't say no to. And you and you kind of like at the same time that you're saying like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. This guy's bad news. You could totally understand why people might fall for it. <laughs> OK, so we're going to talk about Ian McShane. So this is basically my favorite thing ever. I love Ian McShane. I have to like I have to be honest with our audience. I am not objective when it comes to Ian McShane. Like Ian- so this is the first thing I've ever seen him in. Uh, he so what do you what him. do you know him from before okay so years ago he was in a show an hbo show called uh deadwood uh he played al swearingen on that show who is this complicated uh villainous but also heroic character he is a, a pillar of the community but it's a brutal savage community that is slowly moving into civilization 
I don't know. I just loved his performance in that. And so then I went down a rabbit hole where I had to see everything that he had ever done. So when I heard he was Mr. Oh, okay. Wednesday in this, I was like, oh, my God, it's so perfect. That's so funny because my uh, my roommate who we were also watching this with, don't tell stars, um, <laughs> is that uh, he saw Ian McShane and he was just like, that. that's like the poor man's Al Pacino. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know about that. He, yeah, I think he's a great actor. You can see in the scene where he's talking to the uh, airline worker and he's giving the sob story and he has a totally different tone of voice. His body is completely different. And then when he's on the plane, he's very laid back and cocky. His voice is lower. He's, you know, yeah. kind of seducing the stewardess a little bit. He's like, but you didn't say you were going to take it. And uh, I just want to hear Ian McShane talk all the time. I love his voice. It doesn't matter what he's saying. I want to have Ian McShane's adopted voice babies is what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm not objective when it comes to his performance. I, I think the guy's great. Um, but I do think his relationship with Shadow is the most interesting thing going on in the entire episode. Uh, the way that those two are playing off of each other was really good. And I I also liked um, Ricky Whittle, uh, the guy playing Shadow. I thought he did a really good job in the episode. Yeah, I think his performance is less obviously outstanding, but I think a lot of that has to do with just how shadow is written and the character's passivity. Mm -hmm. You know, Wednesday is a much more outlandish character than shadow is at this point. And I, I loved Ricky Whittle in the negotiations scene. I thought that was the, one of the first moments where I was just like, yes, like I'm so down with this casting decision. He was great. Yeah. That in that whole bar scene, he he's really mm -hmm. good he's really good i like the two of them in the bathroom too and his his look of surprise. yeah that was really good <laughs> um yeah ian mcshane uh i don't i'm not really familiar with con men stories either my wife is really big into mysteries and stories like that it's not something i kind of get annoyed with there it happens in the book and also on the airplane they're sitting there and kind of saying different con man i guess like jargon to each other they're like oh you should have yeah. gone this way i i wouldn't have done that gentleman's curve blah blah mm -hmm. blah and I, that stuff annoys me but only because really it annoys me because i don't know it and i'm like stop it oh. stop doing something over my head show but that's like oh, a see, personal I, problem i think it just makes it feel more real right and it sort of it communicates I mean, I don't need to know what those specific cons are. It communicates to me that they share an understanding of this occupation, I guess, or of this realm of expertise. And they are somewhat on the same level. Maybe not the exact same level, but they're like in the same sphere. Yep. They understand each other. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I think that that actually goes a long way towards maybe explaining why ultimately Shadow does say yes, right? Because I guess that's like one of the main things that this episode has to do, going back to the heavy lifting, is 
give a compelling reason why Shadow would start working for Wednesday. And so part of that is taking away his connections to the rest of the real world um, by killing off Laura and Robbie. But then you also have to sort of compellingly argue for Mr. Wednesday. And I think because we know that Shadow knows about con games, he ha- we, the viewer, know that on some level Shadow knows he's being played and is kind of okay with it. Oh. Because even if he's being played, he respects Wednesday's craft. Yeah, and like you were saying, it's the same thing for us as the audience, right? That you can... There's so much charm in what he's doing. You're just kind of buying it, right? That Yeah, you're buying it at the same time that you know that it's a bad idea, maybe, right. probably. Exactly. Yeah, I like that. That's really good. Yeah, and, so, and without that scene of them on the airplane exchanging the names of different cons, I think we would feel more bad for Shadow, or we would think that Shadow wasn't as fully aware of what he's getting himself into. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's not completely aware, but like he he knows a little bit. You're totally right. It's it's my problem. Like it is just the nerd in me. Like information I don't know, not acceptable. Um, yeah. Oh, see, and as a scientist, we're sort of like you can't know everything all the time, so you have to make very you have to make decisions about what you're going to decide to learn or not all the time. See, that's why I stick to very nice religions where everything is explained and neatly contained in a little book. So as we mentioned in our episode zero, we want this podcast to really focus on the TV show. But for our listeners who have read the book, we also want to give some commentary on how the book is being adapted. So at the end of each episode, we're each going to highlight one way that we think the show surpassed the book and one way that we think the show failed to live up to the book. So, Alan, what was your biggest improvement for this episode? In the book, um, we get the description of the rigged coin toss, and he just flips a coin or pretends to flip a coin. And you can do that in a book. You can just say he flips a coin. She walks a dog. And you don't need to describe what the coin or the dog looks like. You just leave that to the reader to think about it. Uh, and use their own imagination. But when you are doing an adaptation, there is a requirement that you have some kind of visual element. We need to see the coin. Since we need to see it, that was an opportunity for the storytellers to make a choice that enhanced the story, and they put that face of liberty on it, and it said liberty. And that was what sent me down the whole rabbit hole of fate and Ragnarok, the American dream, it all came from that coin and seeing Liberty on it and the idea of him playing with his freedom. So I love that little coin and the choice that they made to have that in there. Uh, I thought it was great. Very cool. What about you? What was your biggest improvement? I really loved uh, Laura's friend and Robbie's wife, Audrey. I I just, I loved the way that they wrote that scene and the way it was delivered by the actress. Um, I didn't look up her name, but in the book, it's more of just a straightforward anger, I think. 
And the version that we got in this episode was so much more playful and fun and nasty, but in a really fun way, I guess, (laughs) compared to the book. Um, I thought maybe part of that playfulness is just the fact that she's like clearly high on some sort of combination of drugs and alcohol. Oh, yeah, she's out of it. Um, And just sort of like ricocheting back and forth between all of her emotions and just completely overwhelmed by the situation that she sees herself in. And I thought it was it was just really fun to watch and listen to. And you really feel for her in a way that, yeah, in the book, you're just kind of like, yeah, that really sucks. I'm sorry your husband died that way. But um, yeah, I thought the the show made it much more memorable and much more unique, less sort of just by the numbers plot. I loved it too. I thought she was great. Uh, so what was your biggest disappointment? There's all these dream sequences. The, the um, We get this in the book where they call it the bone orchard. That actually comes from chapter two of the book. That's where the title of the episode comes from. And that's a reference to the graveyard in the back of the uh, prison. And when you think of an orchard, it's columns and rows of trees just like in a graveyard, right? Where the tombstones kind of make these columns and rows. And yeah. yeah. So to call that a bone orchard is kind of this evocative, interesting word choice that Gaiman makes. When we see the bone orchard in the dream, you know, we kind of like come through this cave. It's very uh, Carl Jungian, right? Like, like I could feel Carl Jung roll over in his grave and give a thumbs up. Like, yeah, this is... This is some dark metal (laughs) stuff. Um, The tree is like very scary. There's bones all over the place. But to me, if you had like rows and columns of trees, it would have been almost creepier. Like somebody, that's how I've always pictured it in my head anyway. It it was always creepier to me to have these trees made out of bones with all this weird fleshy fruit hanging off them in rows and columns and just kind of stretching off into forever. I see. Whereas in the TV show, right, it's just rows of trees, but there's bones on the ground. Yeah, they're not even in rows. It's like a forest made of creepy bone trees, which I mean, it's as an image, it's like it's incredible. But to me, it was like, oh, I didn't get to see the orchard that I've always seen in my mind stretching out to infinity in all directions. So I didn't like that. Okay. Uh, What about you? What was your biggest disappointment? So one of my like top memorable lines from the book was something that they included in the episode, but something about the delivery just really didn't work um, for me. And so the line is when they're making the birdhouses in the prison workshop and Shadow's prison friend, who I don't think we have a name for, says something about, you know, don't fuck with people in airports. and, And Shadow says... The moral that he got out of the story is that the kind of behavior that works in a specialized environment such as prison can fail to work and in fact become harmful when used outside such an environment. <laughs> and something about the, I don't know, something about the delivery just didn't really work for me. It was actually like hard for me to literally understand the words as he delivered them. And I guess the point of this line in both the book and the TV show is to really show us that Shadow 
is really smart. And he's thinking about things on a higher level. Wednesday also says on the plane, you're uh, smart enough to know that sometimes you should act stupid or something to that effect. Yeah, I guess it just, in the book, it's such a great moment. And here, it happens so quickly that you almost don't really notice it Yeah, if you're not looking specifically for it. I was super disappointed by that, too, when on my first viewing. Okay, so not just no. me. Well, that wraps us up for this episode. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at StrangelyLiteral. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L, because of character limits. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at ChipperAllen. You can follow the show on Twitter at Shadow Shambler and visit our website at shadowsandshamblers.com for news and episode reviews. If you'd like to leave us feedback, if you love con man stories and have something to share about them, you can visit shadowsandshamblers.com contact or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Come join us next week for episode two, The Secret of Spoon. And use the hashtag Shamblers to live tweet with us on Sunday night. And don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. Because your five-star reviews, subscriptions, and occasional chopping each other up puts the wind in our sails to come see you next week. Shadow and Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released. Under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license. <laughs>